Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Silicon Valley porn star. Man, when this guy first contacted me, I was like, oh no, is this going to be just some other business self-help book about how this guy made millions of dollars and blah, blah, blah. But when I had Jason Portnoy on, the author of Silicon Valley Porn Star, I could not believe how personal he revealed all the things that were going on in his life. And I really admire him for that, what he went through and what he's been through, his addictions and how he survived them and where he is now. And just the honesty, he talks about everything. So let's get right into it. Jason Portnoy, first off, I was intrigued by your story because you were part of the so-called PayPal mafia. You were one of the original employees of PayPal where Peter Thiel and Elon Musk made their first dips into wealth, which I'm sure you did as well. And then you were the CFO of Palantir Technologies, which is Peter Thiel's biggest company that he started and on and on. You've been very involved in the whole Silicon Valley thing, but that's not what your book is about. So (laughs) your book was... Definitely not what I expected. Let's just put it that way. And I loved how you started the, just tell the audience the first story you start with in the book. You spend the night with this girl, Lisa, and you're married at the time. And then what happens? Yeah, so I, I don't spend the night with her, actually. Um, but we, we have an encounter. And I get woken up the next morning by my phone ringing. And it's her mother or a woman saying it's her mother. Uh, saying, where is she? And I, you know, I'm like, what do you mean? Where is she? Where's who? Uh, she's like, where's, where's Lisa? I know you were with her. She didn't come home. And my heart jumps out of my chest. And, and that is, you know, that, that section of the book is called the wake up call. And that was the wake up call. That was the beginning of my life changing. It was crazy. Okay, so it turns out she was kind of, they were like trying to scam you a little bit, like something happened 
and now Lisa needs counseling and, and they're trying to extort you for money. But what I'm curious about is not necessarily the details of that, but why was this the wake up call? Like you were living such a double life at this moment that why didn't you compartmentalize this? Like you would compartmentalize so many other things and we'll get to those other things as well. But I, I, that was the one thing that occurred to me. Like why, if you're living such a double life, you're used to having scares like that probably and hiding them. Actually, I, I wasn't. I, I had a few minor scares maybe along the way, but this was the biggest scare. And I don't know exactly if you know what their plot was or if there was one. I never heard from them again after the after that morning. Um, but I just assumed that this was this was it that my wife was going to find out and. Uh, something had happened about a year prior where I had gotten caught uh, doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And I was able to say, this is the first time, it will never happen again, and all of those standard lines. And so when it happens again, you can't use those same lines. <laughs> and right. so I just assumed this was it. Um, I'm caught. The, the game is over. Why did you assume your wife would find out, though? Uh, well, this woman was threatening to to basically come after us and, you know, knew where we worked, potentially knew where we lived. And I just assumed that that's what was going to happen. So, okay. So now let's take a step back. Cause that, that's yeah. how you started the story. It was, was a good way to start. Yeah. It was a good way to, but, but you started the, the book that way. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was, I, I was following, attention. I was following your literary path. Uh, you started work at PayPal back in the day. Let's just talk a little about that. Like, you're working with Peter Thiel, uh, I guess Elon Musk. What was it like in the early days? This is before, you know, they had achieved any wealth, but was it kind of assumed you guys were, and you weren't necessarily the winners then in terms of payment systems, like eBay was competing with you and, and you were both going, your, your main customers were eBay's customers and eBay was competing with you. Were there times when it seemed like, oh no, this is just a bad idea? A hundred percent. Um, the, and it wasn't just, you know, obviously Peter and Elon, there was lots of other amazing folks who, as we all know, have gone on and started amazing companies. Um, it was an incredible time. It was, a lot was happening. Um, we were um, really fighting against kind of the entrenched financial institutions and industry you know the regulators didn't know how to regulate us um, there was a lot of competition uh, including as you mentioned from ebay and also there was a lot of fraud happening so you know foreign fraudsters had figured out how to um, use bots to sign up for accounts and siphon money out of the system and we were losing a lot of money and so there were lots of moments where we thought this is never going to work this it's over you know, we're, we're, we're hemorrhaging too much money. And, uh, probably that's what galvanized the culture and the team and then the way it did. And it was like our small little boat on this, uh, immense ocean of, of rough waves trying to brave the seas and survive. And, and eventually it did. I feel like one of the hard skills of being in a situation like that is that it's probably very tempting. And I'm speaking from the point of view of Peter and Elon Musk probably it's very tempting to sell the company quickly before the tide comes in and you're left standing naked there. 
and I'm sure they had offers because the, you know, everything was rising up so much, but they probably, you know, they, they kind of stayed the path and went public and eventually got bought by eBay or maybe it was the reverse. Uh, uh, what, what do you think kept them going as opposed to quote unquote, giving up with an early acquisition? Cause I don't think they would have gone out of business given how frothy everything was. I think their worst case scenario at some point was probably like a cheap acquisition. They, they would make five, 10 million each. Right. I, I think you're right. Well, I think there was um, there's kind of a philosophical goal here of liberating financial flows um, globally and, and like frictionless transfer of money around the globe and things like that. So it wasn't just, hey, let's start something and try to sell it and and try to make a buck. Um, I think the company had tried very hard to diversify its payments um, away from eBay. And there were a lot of different things that PayPal tried and some of them were more successful than others. But at the end of the day, the, the payment volume that was flowing through eBay just remained such a huge fraction of the total that in some ways it did feel like we were very vulnerable. So eBay, you know, was, was definitely fighting. Um, and we felt vulnerable. And I think, what happened after that, there had been acquisition offers, but the sense was that the company was getting massively undervalued because of all this stuff that was happening. And so that was why the company went public, uh, was a way of kind of establishing a real fair market value, so to speak. And so the company, you, you had it right before, the company went public and was worth somewhere around eight or $900 million. And then eBay bought it for $1.5 million only six months later because it was growing so fast. And so I think that was the, the motivation there. And so then you have this batch of money all of a sudden, like once the lockup period's over, you're able to sell. And, and did you find that your addictions into other things heightened when you had more money in the bank? Like money increases testosterone. Having more money increases testosterone <laughs> apparently, and which will increase libido. And so describe what your addiction was, and then we could talk about like what happened. Yeah, sure. So I had started looking at online pornography at some point in college and, you know, definitely considered it a habit, um, but didn't really consider it an issue. I thought, oh, this is what all guys do. Um, as I got older and I got into a serious relationship um, and then I started to make some money. Um, I do think my, you know, I don't know if it increases testosterone or not, but it certainly increased my ego. It certainly increased my sense of entitlement and feeling like I'm a successful man and successful men go out and they get what they want. And I want this thing that I'm not getting. And so I'm going to go get it. Uh, through whatever means is necessary. And so definitely, I feel like the, if I had to summarize it with a word, it would be entitlement. Like I am entitled to whatever it is I want. There's several things to unpack there. One is you said you weren't getting something. So you were in this marriage with your, your mm. basically your second serious relationship, this Anne Marie, who's your wife. And mm -hmm. as is typical in many marriages, after several years, she doesn't want to have as much sex as you do, or as you put it in the book, she wants to feel close to you before you have sex. And of course, for men, you want to have sex to feel close. So there's a, mm -hmm. a natural contradiction. And mm -hmm. did you 
respond to that by also trying to, you know, help her feel closer to you? Or did you immediately say to yourself, I want sex, so I'm going to get that regardless? I think I tried everything. <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, that's what most guys do, right? We, we try everything. Um, I tried, I tried doing the things I thought I was supposed to do for us to feel closer together. But then when that didn't work, I probably felt resentful and then pulled away and then we weren't close again. And it was just this, this rough cycle. And I know this happens to other couples as well. You know, it wasn't necessarily unique to us. There were several choices made and we'll talk about Anne Marie's choices in a second. And by the way, thank you for writing this book. Like you, you share so much and you're very comfortable about it. Are you comfortable about talking about it on a podcast or does it feel weird to talk about it as opposed to write it? I think I'm comfortable talking about it. It does feel a little bit weird. And I, I'm very new to this world of podcasting and media and talking publicly. So I think part of me is a little nervous as well. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, here we just meet on the podcast and I'm asking you all these like personal questions. It's something that wouldn't happen, for instance, if we've known each other for years, right. you know, and discussed the podcast beforehand and, and so on. But, you know, I, I appreciate what what you're experiencing. So, you know, you, you like view pornography almost as this gateway drug to Craigslist casual encounters, then escorts, then Ashley Madison and all that. But, but you went in that direction, which is almost kind of like these meaningless hookups in the sense that you don't feel anything for these people. You're just going there for sex. But were you ever tempted to have, as Anne Marie was tempted, were you ever tempted to have a romantic relationship outside the marriage that also included sex? Yes, I, I think part of the Ashley Madison style things, the, you know, I forget the, the term for them at the moment, but part, part of what those websites, I think, are also selling is this idea that you're, you're in a, a separate relationship. It's an affair. It's not just a hookup. It's another relationship. And I think part of what it's selling is this idea of you can maybe as a man, uh, I shouldn't be too cisgendered these days, but anyway, and when I was experiencing it, it was like, um, I want to support someone. I want to take care of someone. You know, I don't know exactly what was driving all of that, but that's part of the narrative that was playing out in my head. And that was certainly part of the narrative that I felt was being sold on sites like that. And so I, I feel like you're getting to something else that's somewhat subtle here, which is the book operates, and I didn't want to make it too complicated. I wanted it to be an easy read for everyone, um, but it kind of does operate on three different levels. There's a social level, which is society. I thought society was telling me that to be a successful man, I should go after money, cars, and women. And those were the status symbols that would, that would make me feel you know, complete and successful. So there's a societal level, number one. Then there's kind of an emotional level, which was I had some childhood traumas that kind of hurt me. And I started doing things as I grew into an adult to try to avoid some of the pain that I was feeling or to numb some of the pain that I was feeling. So there's this emotional level. And then and I, I kind of don't get to this till later in the book, but there's kind of a spiritual level as well, which is that we are all souls moving through this life. Um, there are lessons for us to learn in this life. And my healing really started 
when I started to understand that and to start focusing on healing my soul, which included healing some of those traumas. Well, and it, and that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, like when you're a child, your father leaves you early on, your parents have this uncertain relationship, your mother is not always emotionally available, and this is all described in the book. It's probably this emptiness, like no one's filling this gaping hole, which is the need for love that kids have, love from their parents. And so later in life, you think money is going to fill that, you get a lot of money, and there's some still something missing for some reason. So you get the cars, and there's still something missing. And then you get the women, you got your, your the love of your life marries you, and there's still something missing. And of course, right. then you have these, the, these, the first there's porn, and then there's the escorts and so on, and still something's missing, but that's the last thing. So you go more and more into that. That's right. And I, I think that this happens. I think that this happens. We chase after these things that we think are going to make us happy. And sometimes we actually get those things and then we're still not happy. And that's very disorienting. And in some cases can be very scary. Uh, and certainly for me, at times it was very scary. It was like, wait a minute, my whole life, I thought this is what I was supposed to be doing. And so I did it. And now I'm miserable. Where did I go wrong? That's kind of what was happening in my awakening state. And then, you know, to further kind of underline the, the pain, like while in the middle of this, you find out your wife is also, because she wasn't having her emotional needs fulfilled by you, you were off at work and in these other encounters, she starts having an affair with, with someone you know, and she is not willing to end it. And when you find mm -hmm. out, it had already been going on for 18 months. So I think I would have gone completely insane if I was living <laughs> your life at that moment. <laughs> I don't know how, if you describe in the book how insane you went. It doesn't seem that way. Like you were upset, certainly, but you still wanted to work things out. A, I would have gone insane, and B, there's zero chance I would have worked things out. Well, when I when I found out about her affair, it was minor correction, but when I found out it had been going on for maybe 10 or 12 months or something like that, but it, it hadn't quite been, I think it was 18 months in total because it still didn't end for six months or so after I found out. You know, I think the only reason I didn't go crazy was because I, inside on some level, I knew that I was responsible or, or at least partially responsible, right? N not just because... I had no boundaries around my work and I was kind of working all the time, but I had also been engaging in all of these other things, these secrets that I hadn't shared, porn, escorts. I had my own, you know, multi-month affair at some point. And so again, at some level, I felt like, well, maybe it's not, this is what I deserve. I don't know if it was quite that language, but certainly I felt like I, I've got, some responsibility here too. But just because you have responsibility doesn't mean that this has to be figured out. Like, why didn't you at that point consider a divorce and then, okay, you could have this co-parenting situation with this woman you, you still love, which is your then wife, you know, then you could pursue other relationships and whatever you want, as opposed to feeling guilty all the time and trying to do the difficult work of working things out. I'm not saying you should have done that. I'm just curious why you didn't do that. Well, we, we did contemplate divorce. And in fact, I assumed after we had been separated for 
I don't remember exactly how long, but maybe it was about six months or five months. And I felt like, I think we're, I, I assumed we were probably heading towards getting divorced. And I was kind of sad about that. Well, I was very sad about that. Um, I don't know, you know, this life coach that I talk about a lot in the book had told us fairly early on in the work that number one, don't make any big decisions right away because there's a lot that's going to, to change. I'm going to introduce a lot of new concepts to you. And, um, and then I think also, you know, as we, as we started doing that work, this idea of if we get divorced, we, we started to learn that like what was driving our behavior probably had a lot to do with, you know, who we were and our, and if we didn't change who we were and we left our relationship and went into new relationships, we we're probably just going to make all the same quote unquote mistakes. We we're going to have all the same kinds of issues. And so maybe we should try to figure this out before we make that decision. I mean, that's very self-aware to think that just because it's very easy to think, oh, I'm miserable now. Let's wipe the slate clean and see what happens. At the very least, it seems better to wipe the slate clean. And you didn't do that, which I respect a lot. Yeah, and I, I do feel like there's a tendency in our culture these days to pull the ripcord, so to speak, early and say, hey, this didn't go exactly as we planned. And so I'm out. You know, you did something I don't like or I, you know, whatever the case. And so I'm out and I'm going to go try again with a new person. And I don't know, for us, I, I'm not exactly sure what it was that kept us together. Um, but what we found is that by staying together and working with each other and helping each other through all of the change and all of the growth, we, we both changed our relationship blossomed and went to entirely new levels that we didn't really know were possible before. And it's been really beautiful. So I understand that for some relationships, maybe they shouldn't continue. So I don't want to say that every relationship should try to stick it out and, and all of these things. Some relationships maybe shouldn't stay together. But in our case, it worked. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb. 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you were having your multi-month affair in the middle of all this stuff, was that a situation where you considered leaving Anne-Marie for this other person? No, I never did. So it was more just, it wasn't necessarily romance or love. It was more kind of a ongoing fling. Yes. And, you know, the thrill, the danger of trying not to get caught. And I kind of mentioned this in the book, looking back, the spark and the energy and the electricity that I felt in a lot of those experiences wasn't really about the sex. It was about the anticipation or the danger, or the risk of getting caught, or the fear involved, and things like that. There's all of these emotions that it was bringing out in me that I needed to feel for some reason. Yeah, you mentioned that in your, basically, I think it was your first quote-unquote casual encounter from Craigslist, where you go over this woman's house, and you're, there's all this excitement on the way there, and she kind of immediately says, she's looking for essentially a sugar daddy, someone to help her pay her rent so she could explore her art. And then you could come over and have fun a few times a week. And that was sort of a turnoff to you because I guess by then the quest was over. It was all resolved. 
what she wanted and what everybody needed. And so there were, you, you kind of lost interest almost. Yeah. I also wasn't in a position to be her sugar daddy, you know, at that stage of my life. Um, and I was like, well, if that's what you need, I'm, I'm the wrong guy basically. But yeah, I don't know exactly why the, the spark kind of fizzled there. With addiction in general, I mean, you mentioned even earlier, like how in school, when you were younger, you got caught selling drugs and everybody was horrified. Like with addiction in general, I wonder what percentage of it is the anticipation and what percentage is the act itself. Like drugs do feel good. Sex does feel good. So there's certainly a reason for the addiction other than just anticipation. Right. Well, I think there's a, a big component is the numbing. Um, so, you know, substances definitely help you numb. Sex can help you numb. But then there's also a big element of distraction, which is if your mind is so focused on, you know, in my case, how am I going to arrange my next hookup? Where's it going to be? Who's it going to be? How's it going to go down? What happens afterwards? That is a lot of mental energy that I was expending. And so the term I would use is just, it's a distraction from, you know, what was really primary in my life. And the numbing and the distraction are all devices to avoid feeling. And so, you know, avoid feeling what? Avoid feeling the pain, avoid feeling the shame that was now building as I was doing these things. And so, I think this is how people wind up getting into addictive patterns is there's some core kernel of shame or pain that starts and then you start doing something to mask that or numb yourself from it to avoid feeling it. And then you start to feel ashamed or embarrassed about the thing that you're doing and then it just spirals and builds on itself. And and I guess sometimes the bad things that are happening in, in your marriage, for instance, are almost ways to justify what you're doing so you don't feel the shame. So for instance, if your wife's not having sex with you as much as you would like, you could justify and say, well, look, I want the marriage to continue, but I still need this. And, or if she's having an affair, it's the same thing. In some weird mental formula, you can say, well, now mm -hmm. I have permission. As long as I keep the marriage going, I have now have permission to continue this behavior that I'm doing. And no one can hold you to a romantic commitment because, hey, you're married. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a mess. Um, you know, it was, it was just a mess on a lot of levels. At this point, later on, you were a CFO of Palantir Technologies, which has gone on to be like, I don't know what it is now, a $40 billion company, and you were the, the first CFO. Did your coworkers know what was going on? I mean, you mentioned that they were very intuitive to what was going on in, at least emotionally with you, but did they know the specifics? No, no, not to, to my knowledge, nobody knew anything about what I was doing. Um, what I ref what you're referencing there in the book is that when things were, I was kind of melting down when I was, after I'd been at Palantir for a while and I went to talk with my boss, the CEO, I just felt like he could tell that things weren't right in my life. You know, we didn't talk about specifics. He didn't offer, I didn't ask, he didn't ask. But I just got the sense that he could tell I was not well and probably unraveling. I mean, it makes sense because it's hard to hide that kind of thing, right, at some point. But he was very gracious about it. Can you describe the situation that you had with the employee where that was kind of this first event that you had to come clean with Anne-Marie about? 
Yeah, yeah, good question. So um, I talk about it, I, I write about it in the book, but I I go to an event and uh, an employee of a portfolio company that we're invested in invites me back to her apartment. And I go and uh, not, a, not much happens. Um, but a few months later, in a conversation with the CEO, he tells me that she was very uncomfortable with what had transpired. And I felt horrible about it. Um, and I thought that it might become a larger issue. And so I felt like I should tell Anne-Marie about it so that she would hear it from me. And so that's kind of the, the first time where I said, you know, hey, I did this thing that I shouldn't have done. I'm really sorry. Nothing like this has happened before. Nothing like this will happen again. You know, again, the standard lines. And she believed me. But yeah, that was very, uh, very uncomfortable. And and again, I'm I'm wondering why you felt the need to tell her like well before there was an indication that it might be public. Like, I wonder if you, something inside of you wanted to talk to her about these things. That may be true. I don't, I, I certainly feel like getting caught has been the biggest gift in my life. Um, when I was in high school and I got caught selling pot, it was a huge gift. It changed my life. I turned myself around. Um, and then in this moment that you were just referencing in this experience with the woman who worked at a portfolio company, getting caught, I guess, uh, kind of slightly turning myself in a little bit, but, you know, because I was afraid I was going to get caught, um, that forced me or encouraged me to finally open up with the life coach to the life coach I was working with that, Hey, I've got this, this porn thing that I can't seem to stop. And so that started to change my life. And then a year later when I got, you know, really caught and, uh, got the wake up call that we talked about at the very beginning of the call that absolutely changed my life. So I think you're right. I think that there is a part of us that wants to get caught because it understands that that is the mechanism through which we will really start to change. And so maybe that part of me was happened to be stronger in those moments where my soul was just ready to move on and, and get out of that creation that I was in. You mentioned Melissa, your life coach quite a bit. Like she's the first call you make in some of these situations, like, like the situation with the um, Lisa that you mentioned in the first chapter. And uh, I always think the life coach business is a little bit scammy because any, anybody could put up a shingle and say, hey, I'm a life coach. But she sounds actually really particularly good the way you describe her and the conversations you have. I mean, even just the advice in that first chapter where she says you need to go to the police, it was a really good instinct that turned out to be correct. What made her such a good life coach? This is a, this is a great question. I've been getting so many emails from people asking me for introductions to her <laughs> since, since the book came out. Um, I think, first of all, so life coach life coach is a little bit tricky. People would ask me like, what is a life coach? And I would say, this is years ago. I would say, well, a coach in my view is like someone to hold you accountable. Um, so even uh, professional athletes at the top of their game have coaches. Michael Phelps, when he was winning in the Olympics, he had a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. These elite athletes have coaches. It's someone to hold you accountable. 
um, call you out on your BS, um, not let you get lazy, push you out of your comfort zone. So, you know, Melissa has, has done all of that for me, you know, challenging me on my BS, pushing me out of my comfort zone, encouraging me to try new things, things like that. What's a little bit unique. And I, I, I don't really talk about this in the book because I don't want to, I don't want to have too many mixed messages, but she has also introduced me to a spiritual path that has really, has really changed my life. And so in the book, I talk about this metaphor of climbing my spiritual mountain or a person climbing their spiritual mountain. And in that regard, I would say she's like a mountain guide where she has climbed very far up her own spiritual mountain and now is willing to come down and, you know, hold hands with someone like me and say, okay, I've been down this road. It's not exactly the same road, but it's very similar. And I'm going to help you down this road now. And so, yeah, life coach is a little bit simplistic and I know that it's not well-defined, but I wasn't sure what other term to use. And then you also turn towards Sexaholics Anonymous. What do you think the role of that was in your, let's call it recovery? P pivotal. Um, it was a lifesaver. So when I revealed, so the, the timeline, um, there's this moment when I leave Palantir because I'm spinning like a top, and I'm fraying at the seams, my life's falling apart. Six months later, I find out my wife's having an affair. I play the victim. I never reveal that I had been doing my own bad behavior, having my own hookups or affair or whatever. I don't say any of that. And eventually my wife and I get back together. You know, I'm on good behavior for a little while and then these things start to happen again. And so when I finally come clean and I admit that not only are these things happening now, but they've been happening all along and I never shared it before, it was extremely devastating for Anne-Marie right? It's like you lied through, through all of that stuff we went through where I thought we were both coming clean. Like you, you allowed me to feel like the perpetrator and things like that. And, and it was really horrible that I had done that. Once the affair was revealed with her, and I guess maybe she felt a little guilty about it. Why do you think she wanted to continue it? I guess at that point you moved out and it was sort of like you were heading on this road to divorce. Did she think she was eventually going to get married to Bradley and you guys just have separate lives after that? Yeah, I think at some point she just assumed that he was her future and that they were going to go start a life together. And yet you wanted to really work on the marriage and make it work, I guess, because there's also the feeling you mentioned, of course, money, cars, women, but there's also kids. You had Maya, you had a child together. And, you know, the one thing about divorce is, is that you think to yourself, I'm never going to have the same type of relationship with this child again if we get divorced. And that could feel like the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, absolutely. But you're, you're, you're touching on an, an important point, I think, here, which is it seems like I did a good thing by wanting to work on the marriage and stay together in that first time that things were that we were in a very rough period. It's entirely possible that my motives for that weren't really pure, that my motives for wanting to keep the marriage together were because I was afraid of being on my own. Mm. 
And so it feels, it again, it feels like I did a good thing by sticking through it and working through it. But looking back, I don't think my motives then were actually pure. If they had been, I would have revealed all of my secrets. So I was, I was maintaining a lie in order to stay in the relationship. When I finally got well, after years of kind of coaching work and therapy work and things like that, I finally got well enough to where, to your point earlier, a part of me was ready to get caught. And I was ready to risk losing my marriage. Um, that's when I was willing to finally come clean and share all of my secrets. And when that happened, I moved out and lived by myself and went on this very intensive retreat for a while to try to do a lot of soul searching. And you stayed single during this time, right? Correct. So that must have been kind of a, a very important step in recovery, knowing that you could have kind of that that emptiness filled without necessarily having to have sex every day or well, and, sex with strangers and- or whatever. That's right. And this is now going back to the question you asked earlier, I never quite got to the end of it, which is you asked, how did Sexaholics Anonymous factor in? And so when I moved out, I was very scared. I assumed I was going to lose my marriage. I just thought there's no way we're going to recover from this. I didn't know what was going to happen professionally because I didn't know if this was going to become a public thing. And this was a pattern of behavior. And so I was very scared and Sexaholics Anonymous became a lifeline. You know, I went to the first meeting and I mostly just sat and listened. And it was this room full of people who were going through similar things that I was going through. Every story slightly, you know, of course, every story is unique, but a lot of similarities as well. And all of a sudden it was like a, a room of people I felt like I belonged in who accepted me for my faults and who understood that, you know, I was doing this thing that I kind of couldn't control and then it was destroying my life and I didn't know how to stop and all of that stuff. So I started going to those meetings sometimes twice a day in the very earliest period in the first couple of weeks when I was trying to find a meeting with a group and a place and a time that worked. And it was a lifesaver. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, You're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. 
Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Any 12-step program basically says that recovery is lifelong, that you could always slip back unless you kind of stick with the meetings and, and keep focusing on this. Do you think that's true for sex addiction? And the reason I ask is like, as you get older, kind of your libido declines. Right. Well, I think that the addiction, the term that I use, I don't want to say it's a substitute term, but I feel like the way we get into these addictive patterns is this shame cycle Mm. where there's a pain or a shame and then we try to numb it or avoid it or distract ourselves from it. And we do that by acting out in some way that provides that numbing or distraction. And then we're ashamed of that thing. And it just starts building and building and building. I do feel like with a lot of internal work, you can start to rewind that process and go back and deal with that shame, touch that pain and feel it, let it move through you, not avoid it anymore to a point where you're no longer looking for something to numb you. You're no longer looking for something to distract you. And it's an interesting one because I do aspire to have a very healthy sexual relationship as part of my marriage. And so how does one do that when this has been part of your past? And so that's been a really interesting part of the journey too. And how is that going? Yeah, it's going great. For me, the way this kind of manifested was getting neutral on sex, basically. And what does that mean to be neutral? To be neutral for me means if it's available, I may take the opportunity and may enjoy it, but I'm fairly neutral on it. I'm not chasing after it like I was when I was young, where it was like the only thing I was chasing after it seemed like, nor am I trying to avoid it and say it's bad or something like that. So I'm trying to be in the middle and to be neutral. And in fact, I'm trying to do this in every aspect of my life, to be neutral. There's a couple of interesting things there. There's the neutral in the rest of your life, which actually makes a lot of sense for reasons I'll mention in a second. But the neutral on sex is interesting because in a marriage, usually someone initiates first, right? So being neutral, does that mean you don't initiate or sometimes she does, or sometimes you do, and you're fine if it's not the right day or like, what does neutral mean in this context? Well, I'd say it's very balanced. And I think that, so in the book, I talk about at some point I had to start questioning everything, everything that I thought was true or real. And I feel like our society's relationship with sex is something that I had to really start questioning. Why is it so pervasive 
Why is it so in our face all the time, everywhere? It's the subject of so many conversations. It creates so much drama in relationships, um, even just this issue where one partner wants it more than the other partner and it creates all this stuff. There's something about this. It seems to be more highly charged than it should be. In our relationship, we have tried to kind of dial down the volume on it and make it less of an issue, less of a thing that we're focused on. And the more we've done that and the more neutral we've gotten on it, the better it feels like our relationship has been. I hesitate a little bit to say too much about this stuff because I feel like the baseline for where our culture is today around sex, you know, the volume is turned up so high that for me to say this feels controversial and I, which I find interesting. No, but it's a good way to put it. It's like a lot of political issues that people assume everyone else, you know, again, the volume is driven up on so many different issues that to say something opposite, people can't even comprehend. Right. But you also mentioned, you know, I want to talk about neutrality in every aspect of life. Like you mentioned earlier that you've started to learn to let the pain go through you. And in the book, you quote Gary Zukov's book, uh, The Seed of the Soul, and he refers to this as well, that you kind of keep pain or really any emotion almost at like arm's length. Like they're your emotions, but who are you? Where is the seed of your soul? It's not defined by those emotions. Those emotions are separate from the, the seed of your soul, which is kind of the concept of, of his book. And you mentioned earlier that you've been on a spiritual path going through this. I'm curious if you've had other similar authors like obviously Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, or have you read Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul or The Surrender Experiment? I've read The Untethered Soul. Mm -hmm. That was a while ago. That's a great book. He's been on the podcast and I actually visited him down in his neck of the woods. And then there's also, they, they all kind of revolve around different traditions, like this guy Ramana Maharshi, who was from India, and a couple other, just like kind of different paths all over the world that sort of follow this one concept of keeping the soul and the emotions experienced. The emotions are almost a man-made experience and different from the real you. Yes. I, I, I'm actually listening to Seed of the Soul again right now. I think it's like my third or fourth time listening to the book. I love the book. And I, I agree. What Gary Zukov talks about is this idea that a lot of what we're experiencing, you could consider an illusion. It's just part of this earth experience that our soul is having, but it's not actually our soul. I don't take a step of saying that means I need to keep my emotions at bay necessarily, or excuse me, arm's length. Which he doesn't, which he doesn't say. I should, I should state that you right. still have all the emotions. Right. It's like, you, it's like you can't stop thinking. You still have the thoughts, but who is it that's having the thoughts? That's right. Is it you? Are you that or are you deeper? Right. And so I feel like, um, again, something I mentioned earlier, not just the book exists on all these different levels, but we also exist on all of these different levels at the same time. There's a social level, right? We're existing together. We're having a conversation. We're going out to dinner. There's a social level. Then there's an emotional level where I have tried to allow myself to feel whatever emotions arrive in my body. Let them move through me and not avoid them, even if they might be painful. Because when you avoid them, um, and bottle them up, it squeaks out of you in all these different ways. You know, it could be bad behaviors, 
And then we're all also on another level having this spiritual journey where we are souls that are moving through this earth experience and learning lessons. So I think they're all happening at the same time. It makes it slightly complicated to talk about, and I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about that, but that's how I see it right now. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it on many different levels because take kind of a classic spiritual text like uh, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. To this day, nobody knows if that was a spiritual book or a book of political advice because <laughs> it does apply to other areas of life. And at the time, Confucius, who was a contemporary of Lao Tzu's, was a political advisor. Like his words of wisdom could be taken in a spiritual way, but it was more clear that he was a, a political advisor to kings and so on. And Lao Tzu was a little, his bio is a little more unclear. It's, it's, we don't know if it was a political book or a spiritual book because it applies to both. It does happen on many levels. Yes. And my feeling is that the spiritual level is the substrate. It is the lowest level. And so what I have learned in my own journey, and you know, you asked about authors before, Gary Zukov's a good one talking about this. There's another author named Emmett Fox, who also kind of talks about this concept, where if I focus on trying to kind of heal something inside of myself or resolve something inside of myself, it will naturally resolve in my life. And so if I focus on that spiritual side, and what is, you know, we use the term spiritual, what does spiritual mean? I have a body, there's like my physical body, I have a brain, there's my mental brain, but then there's this other part of me, right? And so we're using the term spiritual to refer to that other part of us. It's not your brain, it's not your body, it's that something else. I do feel like that is the core bottom layer. And so that's where I'm focused now in my own life, if I get things right at that level, everything else that's built up on top of that substrate will be right, is kind of the philosophy I'm, I'm using. Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, Jason, are you going to write another book? I mean, this is a pretty intense book. I don't know. Are you embarrassed? Like, like your people who worked with you all, all during this period who didn't know this stuff, are they like calling you and like, dude, I didn't know. You should have told me. Yes, yes, I've gotten all of that. I'm not embarrassed, though. I went through a phase of being embarrassed about this stuff, and that was part of the journey. But at this point, it's like, this all happened in the past, and I learned so many valuable lessons, and now I want to share it so other people can learn from my experiences. And if it can be helpful, that's really the only goal here. Well, you're, you're a good writer, so consider writing another book. Yeah, I have thought about that. The next one would potentially be how all of these things that I learned translated into my professional work. Because we didn't really get into this. We got into my early career and then all the stuff that happened. But then I've had another career, essentially, that has happened while some of these things were happening. And, and then after I went on this addiction journey... And uh, it has really changed the way that I operate professionally. And I think that could be an interesting book. Absolutely, because you could basically recognize in others what you learned about yourself. So you can see when other people might be geniuses in one area of life, like business, but are having problems in another area of their life. And by knowing that and being aware of it, you could help guide them so that your return on investment, you're an investor, 
is better. That's right. And of course, you don't do it just for that reason, but it's an outcome of that. That's right. And there's also, I have a lot of compassion, I think, because, you know, I did so many things that I was embarrassed by, ashamed of, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that it was all part of a journey where I was learning a lot of lessons. And so now if I interact with someone who's going through something or done something, maybe that they're embarrassed by or ashamed of, I can have a lot of compassion for them because I can say, you know, hey, I was, I was there once. It's been really interesting. Well, I look forward to the next book. This book was riveting. And like I said, it's unlike any other book I've read about the history of Silicon Valley and PayPal and this and that. But it's called Silicon Valley Porn Star by Jason Portnoy. And it's really, it's really great. I highly recommend it. There's so much more that we didn't discuss here. It's just, and it's really inspiring that you, you know, again, not every situation is different. So this is not necessarily what you did, which is staying with your wife is not necessarily the right path for everyone, but it's really admirable how you guys did it. And uh, you dedicate the book to her. You acknowledge her in the, in the acknowledgments. And it's a really beautiful book. Thank you so much for writing it and for coming on the show. I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate or understand. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you.